This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm also Helen, because there is no Stephen this week. However, we have got a couple of exciting guests for you on this week's New Statesman podcast. Sienna Rogers of Labour List joins me to talk about the local elections, and playwright Rajiv Joseph talks about his new play set over a century of Russian history. Hello, I'm Helen, and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week, Stephen is taking a break. Yes, we've let him on holiday in his special holiday suit, so it's just me. But for our first segment, I'm lucky enough to be joined by the editor of Labour List, Sienna Rogers. Hello. Hello. So before we start, let's just set up and tell me who you are and tell our listeners who you are and what you do. So I'm Sienna Rogers. I've taken over as editor of Labour List around three months ago. I think it is now. So I no longer have the excuse of being incredibly new. And Labour List is by Labour for Labour, right? Right, exactly. I mean, it's the inside track on the Labour Party and it's mainly directed at certainly Labour supporters and members largely. Tell us about your the way that you've covered the uh, local election results because as soon as those results started to come in last Friday, I think the ongoing kind of conversation moved into like, are these a good night for Labour or not? Now, some of that, I think, was affected by the fact we hadn't had a lot of kind of expectation management out of the leader's office, out of the Labour kind of high command beforehand. So people suddenly started, in retrospect, deciding what counted as a good night or not. Is that a fair assessment of what happened? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment of what happened. So in the run-up to polling day, I kind of lodged complaints via the Labour list morning email several times, basically saying, guys, why aren't we doing any expectation management? I mean, I don't think it's up to groups like Momentum. I mean, their their aim is to campaign. They need to kind of say, yes, we can win Westminster and Wandsworth in order to get people out on the doorstep. But the party itself should not be saying that we can win Westminster and Wandsworth when we clearly can't. So a lot of that coverage beforehand was me saying, actually, some realistic targets are winning Barnet. <laughs> lol sad lol I'm afraid (laughs) very sad lol and kind of knocking off the Tories majority in Wandsworth and places like that and not doing too badly in in places like Plymouth okay so let's go through a couple of those results so Wandsworth not held by Labour since the 1970s I believe Mm. and still not in fact held by Labour Kensington Am I, have I hallucinated Kensington Council being up for grabs? I think I have, haven't I? I've got some kind of like local elections, <laughs> brain fever. But uh, Plymouth Council, where I think Jeremy Corbyn planned to make his victory speech and then didn't, in fact. Oh, he did. Oh, no, okay. So uh, he was supposed to visit 
Barnet to make a victory speech and obviously didn't do that one. Okay, so let's stop and dwell on Barnet. So Barnet yeah. is the is the emblematic kind of Labour's anti-Semitism problem in electoral form notification, right? I mean, that is a demographically and historically, it's been someone that's been strongly Labour for a couple of years now. And yet Labour fell quite short there. So tell me exactly what happened. Last year, we made some surprising gains in Barnet. So chipping Barnet, no one thought we'd reduce that majority to, you know, a really slim majority there. And we did all right in the other two Barnet seats. Unfortunately, it seems that kind of the increased coverage of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, it kind of got to a crisis point over the last few weeks with protests in Westminster. And that really did have an impact. And I mean, the candidates and activists were saying for weeks you know, this is a problem and we're not going to win here as a result, even though the Tory council, I mean, they were in absolute chaos. Uh, one of the Tories who was deselected over Brexit and and the capital contract, the awful outsourcing and easy Barnet, he actually endorsed the Hale Labour candidates and they still lost in Hale. And that's, you know, that's down to kind of what they were hearing on the doorstep. And another bit of um, North London trauma. Um, am I right in saying, I want to say one of the Haringey sets of councillors, three councillors deselected, replaced with a momentum slate, who then all promptly lost to Lib Dems? Yes. I mean, the fact that the Lib Dems were making gains in Haringey uh, is pretty bad. And yeah, clearly the, there are other areas of the country as well as Barnet that had large Jewish populations that we lost unexpectedly. And one of the most interesting results I thought was Derby. So Derby North MP, Chris Williamson, is a devoted Corbynite, mm. uh, really puts the hours in. Yeah. Um, also a kind of thing, a devoted appearer of, on Russia Today and other things like that. Yeah. And was extremely gung-ho about kind of like back us or get out of the party and that kind of, you know, we're the coming tendency now. But the council results were pretty bloody from Derby as far as I could see. What's that about? Is it perhaps that Derby doesn't like being shouted at about supporting Jeremy Corbyn? <laughs> the Derby results are pretty bad. Uh, I think people saw that coming. So I think the local council has quite a lot of problems. This is the thing with local elections. You can't totally map them onto general elections because there's so much dissatisfaction on a local level about, you know, bins, not Brexit, like what the Tories wanted people to vote on. So there's some problems there. It was also the UKIP votes were going to the Tories rather than Labour. I think that was a main issue in Derby. Right. So I think this is one of the interesting things about how we look at the anti-Semitism scandal. I mean, most people in the Jewish community I've had conversations with, I've had kind of a slightly bleak view of like, they think it's a real issue. They think it's a, a big, bad issue. But they also think that, and I think Stephen said this on the podcast last week, you know, you, it's not one that's going to break through in places that have historically not had very many Jewish people living them. And I think you probably, that's something that's borne out by the local council results. The other thing that worried me about them is uh, those results is the kind of couple of instances of Tory racism. So there's the Pendle Council, which was someone was reinstated on basically on the morning of the election after being kind of elected to give the Tories back control of that council after making some pretty appalling remarks on Facebook. So how are the Tories getting away with, you know, high-handedly giving Labour lectures on this issue, but also sneakily reinstating councillors with, quote-unquote, diversity training? Yeah, I mean, it's it's awful and those excuses are, you know, pathetic. I mean, Brandon Lewis went on the Sunday shows de defending that decision to reinstate that Pendle councillor. Uh, and they had lots of uh, instances of leaflets throughout the campaigns, which 
had some kind of racist content and some I mean ridiculous uh content <laughs> I saw a really uh I want to say Romford but someone in the London outer London places that mm. had some I mean dog whistle was putting it extreme you know it was sort yeah. of lots of stuff about urban populations and then Very lots of blatant. stuff about Muslims that was just kind of yeah eye rolling really like you just I just didn't know that people put out election leaflets like that anymore yeah and uh, Muslim Council Britain have called on the Tories you know to conduct an inquiry into their Islamophobia basically and they have so far refused they said oh we'll listen to concerns but you know they're not actually going to sort this out properly why they can get away with that I mean they've basically lost the main vote to Labour already so they don't care as much and the the losses maybe aren't as dramatic as like not gaining Barnet when we really should have. Mm. Overall though good night bad night for Jeremy Corbyn. Good night for Jeremy Corbyn mixed picture for the Labour Party. Go on unpick that for me. (laughs) I mean there's there's no point saying that these results are a bad night for Jeremy Corbyn because he is a leader of the Labour Party and he is not going to stop being the leader of the Labour Party until he chooses that. But for the Labour Party as a whole, I mean, there are some good and bad things. I mean, we did do very well in London. And if they had done better expectation management, everyone would be saying Labour did brilliantly in London. The vote share in Wandsworth was higher than the Tories' vote share. It's ward boundaries that really let us down. And also, you've got to say that some of these places, the vote was already really high. So the last time that they saw was, what, 2014 under Ed Miliband, where the party already made kind of really big advances in some of those places, which will be an interesting story at the next general election in London if you end up with vaguely similar percentages, but the votes sort of splitting in the way that it did last time, right? There are some seats where it's just almost there aren't any other people who vaguely might vote Labour that you can persuade to vote Labour. Some of these, you know, or I think somewhere like Bristol West, where I think Fangham Debonair's majority is like, I'm going to say 90 billion, maybe 100 billion, (laughs) something something like like that. that. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So for the Labour Party, let's unpick this further. Uh, so the two schools of thoughts are one thing I saw, you know, lots of Labour commentators the day after saying best results in London since 1971. They had to correct themselves because initially they tried to say best results since 1971. Yeah. And then other people kind of went uh, Tony Blair. And when, you know, the in I think 1995, Labour made huge advances in terms of local councillors. If this was a party that was heading for government, it would be expecting to just take a lot more seats. Is that fair or unfair? I mean, there's a caveat in that last year, which we never expected, we did pretty badly in the local elections. And then a month later, Jeremy Corbyn led the party to do surprisingly well in the so general election. So was it 27% vote share in the locals and then 40% in the general election? I mean, uh, yeah, no one expected that. And it happened. So we can't rely too much on these results being an indicator of how we're going to do in the next general election. But nonetheless, aren't they an indicator of the kind of the way that the country is now splitting, which is a lot more about cultural lines. It's a lot more big cities versus small towns. It's a lot more about graduates versus non-graduates. Isn't the analysis that you would really, if you were the Labour Party, take out of this is actually, and I'm going to I, I, I prepare yourself because this is going to be upsetting to several of our listeners, <laughs> a bit of a blue Labour analysis, right? That you need to actually appeal a bit more to people in traditional working class occupations, people in traditionally leave areas. These are the pla- These are the seats that you can win, right? That's the battleground of the next election. The battleground of the next election is, say, seats in the Midlands like Ashfield, like Mansfield, um, those kind of seats that are, that have kind of swapped. Well, I mean, yeah. Mansfield went Tory last time on a very, very slim majority. Absolutely. Bishop Auckland, you know, these kind of, these kind of places. 
But that means that Labour's got to appeal to leavers, mm. to my mind. So yeah. it's not going to kind of suddenly go, we love the single market, we love the customs union. Actually, we love Jean-Claude Juncker. Mm. Let's have another referendum and see if we get the right result this time. And it's also got to appeal to people who are kind of culturally brexit as well as actual Leave voters, right? And that's not something that Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party finds itself naturally very at ease with. Right. So I think we can take from the local election results kind of trends. It basically uh, re-entrenched what the 2017 general election told us and it highlighted our weaknesses. I think that in terms of Brexit, that's kind of more worrying for Theresa May than Jeremy Corbyn because, you know, either she lets down those leave voters that are voting Tory by going soft or she goes hard and then mm, economic downturn and and it's all um, pretty awful for those voters. Mm. Uh, So that's not great for her. I think it's more the cultural thing that uh, is really a difficulty for Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. I mean, yeah, we should not be losing in North East Derbyshire in Mansfield. That shouldn't be happening. And we need to look at why that is happening. OK, one final question. What is the subject on Labour list that makes people most angry? What is the one that gets most comments that most like is, you know, what, is it Corbyn's personality itself still? I would say he's, you know, he himself is a very polarising figure. Or are there issues within the party that are just absolutely red hot? I think what gets most hits is articles praising Jeremy Corbyn. What gets most comments is articles about anti-Semitism, without a doubt. And I mean, how, from your point of view, how do you deal with that? Because, you know, we, we luckily don't have comments on the site, right? And so that happens on social media. But that's that's a big job for, for you to moderate that. Yes. So Labour List at the moment is just me. Right. <laughs> uh, in the past, it's had two, three, even four staff members. At the moment, it's just me. And I'm supposed to moderate those comments. And sometimes there are thousands. So that's difficult. And I have to shut them down occasionally because I literally can't read through all of them. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. I mean, that's kind of, um, there's always this question that comes up about issues within parties that cause huge amounts of, of anguish about how many people are actually involved in having that conversation, right? Or whether, whether or not it's a small number of people who are just extremely vocal, whether or not it's a, it's a broad issue. But anti-Semitism is one, I think, that I, actually it's, it's broad enough that, you know, some a, a place the size of the, the Guardian is having you know a lot of resources into moderating those never mind you on your own so chapeau to you on that thank, thank you. you very much for joining us that was sienna rogers of labor list there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And now I'm joined by playwright and author Rajiv Joseph, who's described the night runs until 9th June at the Hampstead Theatre. Previously wrote a play called Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo, which was a 2010 Pulitzer Prize finalist for drama. And he served three years in the Peace Corps in Senegal and now lives in Brooklyn. That's a great mini biography. Um, tell us a bit about the, the current play that you, you've just brought over here first. Yes, my play Describe the Night, uh, which is opening at the Hampstead Theatre, is a play that I've been working on for about four years. And it had its New York premiere this past fall at the Atlantic Theatre in New York City. And uh, I'm very excited to have this London premiere happen so quickly after that one, while the play is kind of still fresh in my head. In fact, I've been 
still rewriting it as I've been over here in London working with these actors and this director, Lisa Sperling. So it talks about Russian history and it takes, I think, a, I think it's fair to say a broad sweep, right? It goes from 1920 to 2010. Yeah, a 90-year span in the in the play. The play is actually three plays, three small plays that intersect and eventually connect. Uh, one of those takes place between 1920 and 1940. One of them takes place in 1989. And one of them takes place in 2010. So what are the stories of, of Russia in that? And I, I know you bring in Poland too and the air crash that wiped out quite a lot of the Polish government when whether or not that was or wasn't directed by Russia. But what are the kind of, what are the phases of, of Russian kind of history that you, you think those periods break down into? Well, the play begins in 1920 in Poland during the Russo-Polish War. And I was inspired by this writer, Isaac Babel, who uh, wrote extensively about his experience as a war correspondent following the Red Cavalry in their campaign in Poland. And he wrote a famous book of short stories called Red Cavalry, which was about his experiences. But more pointedly, he he kept a diary while he was there called his 1920 diary that I found. Um, it was published posthumously, and I found that on the, like at a bookseller on the street in, in New York City in the East Village and read it um, and was really taken by the poetry of it and the the fragmented nature of his of his journal writing. So that was what inspired to me to begin the play there. And but really what what then bookended it was in 2010, this uh, Polish aircraft carrying most of the government of Poland crashed, killing everyone on board in Smolensk, Russia. And it was such a stunning event that happened at the time and also very underrepresented in the media. I think a lot of people don't even know about this, which is crazy. And right now, still to this day, there's a lot of conspiracy theory regarding that crash. There's still a lot of mystery surrounding it. Um, people in Poland and in Russia, you know, are divided on, you know, what happened. And many people believe it was an accident and very well could have been. It was a very foggy night or morning. It was dawn. But there's um, a lot of a lot of people who believe that it was uh, a purposeful attack on the Polish government. Uh, this play doesn't make a claim either way or or, or the other, but it, it 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 explores that moment in history. I think one of the interesting things is thinking about Russia. I mean, if you started writing this in 2014, it was kind of before Russia became the kind of great bogeyman of did it influence yes. the 2016 U.S. presidential election. But also in terms of those conspiracy theories, there's a real kind of Barockness about some of the accusations. I remember the poisoning of the Ukrainian um, presidential candidate, you know, and and you could see his like his face just kind of completely boiled overnight. Right. It was such a an obvious thing to do. Or the Alexander Litvinenko and his poisoning and that famous sort of slightly Pieta like photo of him in the hospital bed, you know, having lost all his hair from radiation poisoning. It's very hard to to try and come to a decision about you know what Russia's complicity in some of these acts are. So for you to not put a decide either way, what was the dramatic purpose of that? Why did you want to leave people with that ambiguity? Ambiguity is a big part of this play's idea, central themes, uh, which is what do we believe is true? What do we believe is false? How does history get told? Why do we believe things are true? Why do we kind of blindly accept historical fact when in you know like anything else it's a story that one person told to another one person wrote down and another person published um it seems to me that even in our own personal lives we we tell stories about ourselves that are only half true or only partially true in order to get to the, the get to the deeper idea of 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 what actually happened i, f I find fascinated by this idea of how stories 
how journalism, how fiction writing and poetry, how history and, 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 and just conversation contributes to both a sort of blending of truth and lie, lie and truth. And it seems to me that when we become, uh, when there's a rigidity, rigidity uh, imposed upon a particular fact, um, it becomes suspicious to me. <laughs> See, I think you're having maybe the opposite experience to maybe journalists are having at the moment, which is that what I find quite alarming now is actually that very few facts seem to have very much rigidity at all. And right. you can have, for example, a US president who will you, you know, be confronted with an allegation and will just flatly go, no, I didn't. Right. No, I didn't. And that becomes quite, I find that quite disorienting. Quite, there's almost a sort of sense of vertigo about that, about actually how strong are those guardrails for somebody to simply deny something that is obviously true. Yeah. And this is the flip side of the play also, which is this denial of facts, denial of what actually happened. The opening scene of the play taking place in 1920 is the meeting of these two characters, Isaac Babel, who is this writer and a character in the play, and Nikolai Yezhov, who uh, one day would become the head of uh, the NKVD, Stalin's secret police. And they had in real life this actual friendship, which was extremely unlikely because one man was Stalin's right-hand man and the other man was this poet and and subversive writer. And when they meet, their, their conversation in the play is revolving around this particular incident that happened that day in which Yezhov murdered an innocent man. And the way that they talk about it, the way that they try to get to the heart of what actually happened and what is true and what is not true and, and how does this how will this relate to perhaps the fictions of Isaac Babel or the journalism that he has to write becomes a sort of kind of crucible for the rest of the play, that the rest of the play, wherever we are in time, be it 2010 or 1920, um, we're dealing with characters who are struggling with how to tell the truth and how to deal with the lies that are being thrown their way. And my final question is about trying to be, trying to make art really in a, such an extraordinarily turbulent political time. Because I presume everybody now, everything you write for the next couple of years is going to be read as a Trump allegory. Kind of whether or not you want, you know, you could write a romantic comedy and people <laughs> are going to go like, ah, oh, but what does this say about the Trump presidency? Has that made your job, has that changed the way you approach writing? Has Trump? Yeah, and 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 the whole climate of post-truth, which is obviously very applicable to this play, but I imagine will be, you know, will be read into any kind of drama that's being produced at the moment in America. You know, it's one of those things that it's it's dom it dominates our sort of national consciousness. And so it dominates a personal consciousness. I think, if anything, I feel that the United States and the world at large is, is experiencing a, a very dangerous moment. And as a writer of theater or you know film or TV, I am drawn, I think, to stories that can address or combat that the sort of anti-intellectual lying uh, I'm going to use words that I can't use, so I'm not going to say. But um, <laughs> the the it it instills or it, it inspires a certain rage, I think, in a lot of people in the country. And I feel very lucky that I have a vocation in which I can at least attempt to address and argue with it, argue back at it, um, because you know he is Trump is the embodiment, I think, um, of a uh, of a person who will you know, say that black is white until half the people in the world believe it. Yeah, he doesn't strike me as somebody who maybe watches a lot of theatre or drama more more generally, right? There's just a kind of an interesting thing that 
know, he comes from reality TV is, is, you know, is what brought him to the kind of American public consciousness, which is a very deliberate blurring of fact and fiction. But I kind of can't really imagine him enjoying fiction fiction. It's a sort of strange contradiction. I don't think he knows how to read. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, I mean, certainly he didn't write any of his own books. So maybe <laughs> he hasn't even read any of his own books. But anyway, thank you very much for joining us. That was Reggie Joseph and the play is Describe the Night, which runs until the 9th of June at the Hampstead Theatre. Thank you, Helen. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and sadly no Stephen Bush, but he's back next week, don't worry. We were recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our theme music is from the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Why not, to celebrate the fact that Stephen isn't here, send me a tweet. I'm very up for gifts of Some Like It Hot, Kittens in Buckets. Don't tell me what happens in the Avengers movie because I haven't seen that yet, but I am at Helen Lewis. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.